So about four, maybe five years ago, I was having a quiet time, and I read the passage that we're going to be looking at today, and I thought, there's a sermon in here that needs to be preached. And uh, so I grabbed not just a post-it note, I grabbed this post-it note right here, and I, I took a few notes, jotted some things down. Uh, because I was hoping to someday have the opportunity to preach this message. And today is that day. So the title of this morning, uh, of the message this morning, and I jotted it down on this blue post-it note. And I am going to use the title. And it's called, Don't Be a Donkey. I just want to see if we get it up there because I found a really cute donkey. Isn't that cute, donkey? So, yeah, but don't let, don't let the cuteness fool you. So, don't be a donkey. Because this message is a cautionary tale about making assumptions. And if you found a pun in there, that's okay. So, the passage is 2 Samuel chapter 10. And uh, I'm just going to read here the first five verses. 2 Samuel chapter 10. I'll give you a moment to find it. There's a Bible probably in front of you, uh, in the chair below you. Or if you're loading it up, 2 Samuel chapter 10. We're in the Old Testament. We'll also have it up on the screen. The word of the Lord. In the course of time, the king of the Amorites died, and his son Hanun succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanun, son of Nahash, just as his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanun concerning his father. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanun, their lord, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So Hanun seized David's envoys, shaved off, half of each man's beard, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. When David was told about this, he sent messengers to meet the men, for they were greatly humiliated. And the king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, and then come back. So let's pray again in response to God's word. And Father, we are praying for ears to hear, eyes to see, and faith to respond. Lead us in these ways, we pray. Thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. All right, so we are in a book that we have not been in in a long time, so of course I need to give you just a little bit of context. You know, context is 
very important to me. So 1 Samuel, uh, 1 and 2 Samuel, maybe some of you knew this, that originally when it was written was a part of, it was just one book, 1 and Samuel. We've divided it up. Uh, that didn't happen until after, much later after uh, it was written. But um, so 1 and Samuel, they were originally one book. And I'm going to put up a graph that we've seen before, a chart that we've seen before. When we did the Minor Prophets series, and I get to run over here, and I get to just point out that here we are. Here are the books written around 1000 B.C. or so, around the time of David. Um, so that you can see when these, when these books were written and um, sort of the historical context. Um, there it is. The first half of um, this, this book, um, First and Second uh, Samuel, the first half, the book that we know as First Samuel, it, it mainly focuses on the priest Samuel, uh, which of course is the book's namesake, and then Saul, who was... Israel's first king. The final chapter of this first book of 1 Samuel records Saul's death, and it, of course, then sets the stage for the anointing of Israel's second king, David, and David is who the book of 2 Samuel is all about. Okay, so you sort of got the big picture. That's a little bit of the um, historical context. 2 Samuel uh, I think can be divided very nicely into two primary sections. Um, the first nine chapters record um, David's amazing uh, strength and his successes. So if you want to see how awesome of a leader David is, just read the first nine chapters of Second Samuel and you'll be satisfied. Okay, but... Um, but David was more than just incredibly successful and strong. He was also weak and at times a bit of a failure. And so if you want to like, learn about him from that perspective, then read chapters 11 to 24. Because that's what the second half of Second Samuel is all about. So it's sort of the rise and then the fall of David. So that leaves us with chapter 10, which is right smack dab in the middle of those two sections. And some people will put chapter 10 with chapter 9, uh, the first nine chapters, and other people will put chapter 10 with the final uh, chapters. Um, but chapter 10 could actually be seen as like a, a pivot chapter where both you see both happening. You see him doing something really nice at the beginning and then something not so nice at the end of the chapter. And so I like to think of chapter 10, this one that we're in as a pivot chapter. How are we doing so far? Have I lost you? Okay, good. All right, there. That's, uh, that's just, it's important to me that we get a little background and perspective before we do a deep dive. Okay, so we already read the first five verses of this chapter. In the first two verses of the chapter, it says this, that David wanted to show kindness to the newly appointed Ammonite king, Hanun, as a way of expressing gratitude for the kindness David had been shown by Hanun's father, Nahash. Now, 
we, we're not exactly sure what kind of kindness or when um, uh, Nahash had shown kindness to David. There's speculation. We're not quite sure. But um, we do know uh, this. We do know uh, the kind of kindness that David was wanting to show uh, Nahash's son uh, as a way of honoring the kindness that he had once been shown by this now deceased king. And if you think about it, it's really remarkable that King David would want to do this because of the kind of um, relationship that the Israelites and the Ammonites had had, not for a little bit of time, but for centuries, right? They had a contentious relationship. And so for King David to want to show kindness is to this king is really remarkable. It's really remarkable. I wonder how many of us know, though, that just because you so, show kindness to somebody, it doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's going to be reciprocated. You guys know this? Yeah, you can show kindness. It doesn't mean you're going to get kindness in return. In fact, Jesus made this very clear in Luke chapter 6. He said, even after we love and we do good and we bless and we pray for our enemies, after we do all of this, they actually still may not like us. In fact, they still may want to harm us, is what Jesus says. This certainly was David's experience. His intent was to show kindness to his enemies. But um, yeah, let's look again at how the Ammonites uh, responded, and we get to see this in verse 2 and verse 3. When David's men came to the land of the Ammonites, the Ammonite commander said to Hanan, their Lord, do you think that David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Hasn't David sent them to you only to explore the city and spy it out and overthrow it? So I was reading this passage and I began to wonder, and I wonder if some of you are also beginning to wonder, how Hanun would have responded to David's act of kindness had his commanders not sown conspiracy theories about the delegation sent by David? Do you see this? Do you see what's happening here? I just wonder what Hanun's response would have been had those advisors of his not come up with this conspiracy theory. What we do know is that, and perhaps out of youthful naivete, because Hanun was a newly appointed king, so maybe young, uh, maybe prideful security. He had something that he needed to prove or to show. Maybe an unhealthy reliance on bad counsel, which happens all the time. Perhaps he had some poor judgment because, remember, his father had just died. And so he's in grief. And sometimes we don't think well when we're in grief. So and maybe... For some other reason altogether, Hanun takes the bait, right, given to him by his advisor, and he orders his men to humiliate David's ambassadors, which has deadly consequences. 
as you see at, uh, at the end of the chapter. And we have to think, could Hanan have handled the situation better? Yeah. So we now have 2020 vision, and we can say, I could think of several ways that Hanan could have handled this situation better. For instance, I, I want to know what would have happened had Hanan talked first with David's men before talking with his own guys. That, that could have been helpful in this situation, just saying. I'm curious why Hanan didn't ask his advisors for, for more evidence of their proposed theory before just buying it and acting on it. Show me the proof. Hanan must have known how humiliating it would have been for David's men. Um, for them to experience what he ordered. Hanan must have known how humiliating that would have been for them. For why else would he have done it, right? And he also must have known how it would have infuriated King David once he got word. So, I don't know, that just leaves me thinking, why didn't he say then to King David's men as they were approaching, hey, thanks for trying to show some sympathy, but now get off my property. You know, why didn't he just send them away? All right, so these are all questions that are stirring around in my head. When I read this account, and then uh, some of the students over here, we, we discussed this passage Friday night. And, um, and we kind of agreed that one of the things that seems super clear from this passage is that Hanan had become blindsided by an assumption that was based on nothing, nothing. So I can relate to this. During my first year at SUNY Potsdam, I worked in one of the cafeterias on campus. My job was working in the dishroom where I scraped and I pre-washed plates, bowls, glasses, cups, silverware, anything that came through that window, I washed it. The next year, I was promoted to beverage boy. That's really what they called me. <laughs> where I filled and refilled all the beverages that we served, including whole milk, skim milk, chocolate milk, lemonade, fruit punch, a variety of sodas, hot water for tea, and of course, my favorite... Coffee. Yes, coffee. During my last year of college, I was promoted once again. I got even a cooler title. I became a student supervisor, <laughs> where I was given responsibility for hiring, training, evaluating, and even disciplining the other students who worked in the cafeteria. I'm telling you all of this because for three years, I spent a lot of time in this cafeteria. Um, this is Bowman, by the way, for those of you who know the campus. So hanging on the walls of this large cafeteria were a dozen or more pieces of abstract art with the emphasis, in my opinion, on abstract. 
So to my admittedly underdeveloped imagination and abstract art underappreciation, these framed pieces looked more to me like somebody had just thrown paint on a canvas and said, voila, art. That's what it looked like to me. I had absolute no appreciation for these so-called paintings. In fact, uh, my friends and I would frequently mock them. All right, so one day during my senior year, a crew of maintenance guys came in and they began to remove the paintings. Now, because I was a student supervisor, I was curious about what was happening in my cafeteria. But unfortunately, I wasn't curious enough to ask questions. I thought it was obvious what they were doing and who they were, and so... So I just made some assumptions. With a sense of gratitude, I mentioned to one of the guys who seemed to be in charge how thankful I was that they were finally getting rid of this junk. Yeah, a few days later, I picked up our campus newspaper, and I was surprised to see on the front page a large picture of the maintenance guy that I had spoken to. My surprise turned to horror, though, as I read the caption below the photo, which identified the man as Dr. Roland Gibson. Oh, yeah, a world-renowned art collector and curator of what was known for decades on campus as the Gibson Art Gallery, now called the Art Museum at the State University of New York at Potsdam. What had I done? Right? I made an assumption about someone because of how he and those that he was working with were dressed. I presumed that they were removing trash. Because of my own bias, I actually could not even begin to imagine that what I had no appreciation for, someone might consider valuable. All right, I wonder if maybe you, like me, have at times made some poor assumptions. I'm not going to put any microphone in the front and ask you to come forward. Have you made assumptions? My assumption is that we all have. <laughs> and I have this actually on good authority. For the Lord God Almighty says that we all have a tendency to make assumptions about people and things based on our own biases and the biases of those that we choose to listen to. This is what the Lord God Almighty says about each one of us. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at the outward appearance. But I, the Lord God Almighty, I look at the heart. God can see, God does see the value and the worth of every 
human being. And to him, every person is a precious work of art made in his image. Amen. We, on the other hand, we make assumptions about people based on silly things like their clothes, like their hairstyle, like their skin color, like their body shape, how they smell, the way they talk, the way they walk, the way they limp, or the way they sit in a wheelchair. We make assumptions about people based on their occupation, their educational level, their economic standard of living, their political affiliation, the make, the model, and the source of fuel for their car, whether they use an Apple, an Android, or a flip phone, or whether they squeeze the toothpaste from the bottom or the middle. We make bad assumptions about people. God is right. We are good at making judgment about others simply by outward appearance. Oh, I could have gone on. <laughs> Sadly, <clears throat> we are not immune from making false assumptions about others just because we claim to be Christians. In fact, Christians, in my experience, have been some of the harshest judges of all. Oh, okay, a little quieter there. <laughs> judgment. Judgment is made against brothers and sisters based on Bible translations they use. I've seen it. Some of you have seen it. How they interpret spiritual gifts, the end times, how and when they think that everything was created, just to name a few of the contentious issues within the church. We can make judgments about other Christians who use different styles of music and instruments in our corporate worship, the roles women can have within the local church, the educational achievements of pastors, and who they plan to vote for in this year's presidential election. Telling you, we can be harsh. Whoa. All right, now let's be clear, because some of you are fact checking me already. I know, I'm going to get it afterwards. Let's be clear, okay? Not all assumptions are bad. There, I said it, because some of you are thinking, oh, wait a minute here. Not all assumptions are bad. Assumptions that have roots and facts are good. And there are good reasons why we should make them. For instance, wasn't it nice when you came in this morning that you could assume that the chair that you're sitting in was going to hold you up? That's a good assumption. Thank you. Great engineering. I'm also really thankful in this moment that we can assume that gravity is going to continue to hold us down. Anybody also thankful for that? These are good assumptions that we can make. 
When you think about it, in fact, it's really hard to imagine living life without making certain assumptions. So not all assumptions are bad. Let's be really clear about that. When they're rooted in facts, assumptions actually can be good and very useful and helpful. But when it comes to making assumptions about people, especially their motives, this is where we need to be very careful. Some assumptions can, be, can have deadly consequences. Deadly consequences. Hanun made an assumption about King David's delegation based on the bias of his advisors, his trusted advisors. And as you read the rest of chapter 10, you read about the needless death of at least 50,000 men because of a needless and senseless assumption. I am not a historian, but I do wonder how many wars have been unnecessarily fought and lives and families and cultures unnecessarily destroyed because of bad assumptions. I wonder how many friendships and family relationships have been broken because of false assumptions. I wonder how many churches have lost precious kingdom opportunities and resources because of factless assumptions. I also wonder how many people have become disinterested in God because of poorly informed informed assumptions that they've made about him and about his people. Our daughter and our son and our daughter-in-law, they were with us on New Year's Eve to help us usher in this new year, 2024. And as we waited forever and ever and ever for the ball to drop, um, we played a game that our daughter had given, that um, Alyssa had given me for Christmas called Huga. And if you go to the store looking for it, it's spelled, it, it doesn't, it's not spelled the way it sounds, Huga, that, it's spelled H-Y-G-G-E. I had to look it up on how to pronounce it. Huga is what I've been told. All right, there you go. So the purpose of this game, it isn't to win, but it's designed to create meaningful conversations. The game comes with about 100 cards, and on the back of each card, there's three questions. Players take turns drawing a card and choosing which of the three questions to ask the group. And after everyone's been given a chance to answer the question, the next player draws the card on the top of the sack, and then it's it's repeated. The process is repeated. For Beverly and me, it was, it was tremendous fun um, hearing our kids' responses to certain questions, especially the one question that we got. Uh, it was hilarious. The question was, what's something you did when you were younger that you never told your parents? <laughs> what a moment. That was, that was the best part of New Year's Eve for us. <clears throat> But it was this question, actually, that generated the most discussion. This question. What's one thing you would like to see more of in the world? 
So words like love and peace and justice, they were suggested and everyone agreed. Oh, yeah, yeah, that one. Oh, yeah, that's what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, that's a great answer. We just all agreed that more of that would make for a better world. Do we agree? More love, more peace, more justice, yeah. When it came my turn to answer, I agreed with all of that. But I added to the wish list this word, curiosity. Curiosity. Because I think that this world would be a much better place for everyone if more of us had a greater interest in learning from people that are different than us. Curiosity. So this is how I'm praying for myself in this year, and this is how I'm praying for us as a church. I'm praying for greater curiosity because I think that curiosity actually is the antidote for bad assumptions. Imagine how much better things could have gone for Hanan had he pressed into his curiosity and started asking questions of his advisors before jumping to conclusions. I think about all the wars and the battles in which countless thousands of people have died and are dying that may have been prevented had not those in charge taken the advice based mainly on assumptions. Imagine how much better off marriages and parenting would be if we stopped writing off false narratives and just asked a few more open-ended questions. I can't help but to believe that drastically fewer teenagers would succumb to self-harm if they didn't believe certain assumptions about themselves or ones others made about them. I also have a conviction that if more people simply asked better questions and made fewer assumptions about who they thought God was, more people would want to receive his kindness demonstrated in his son, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So if curiosity is the antidote to making bad assumptions, how can we cultivate more curiosity in our lives? This is how I'm going to land the plane here in this message. So this is a question that I think all of us could be asking God. God, can you help me to have greater curiosity for others rather than write them off with my own biased assumptions? It's a great prayer. It's a great prayer. The definition of love, it's, it's uh, one definition is found in 1 Corinthians 13, and it says that love, love always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. If our love was like this for God and others, I could see how it would discourage us from making assumptions about God and about others that actually would hurt him and hurt others. Curiosity, it seems to me, is cultivated by love. It is reported that Aaron Byrne, 
advised Alexander Hamilton to talk less and smile more. And you are welcome now for um, having that song now stuck in your head for the rest of the message. Yep. I think that Aaron Byrne was half right because I think that listening is an important skill as a means to cultivating curiosity. James, uh, an earthly brother of Jesus, wrote this. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God deserves and, and desires. Talking less, listening more, and maybe smiling, uh, smiling occasionally. I think it, it's wise advice for anyone wanting to avoid making hurtful assumptions. If you would like to grow your listening skills, grow in your ability to ask good and open-ended questions. That's my tip. Here are some suggestions. I began to work on a list, and then I got tired, and so I Googled. And so, uh, truth be told, and so in any event, um, not all of these ideas are mine, um, and uh, yet down below, I give credit. If you want to find that, um, uh, there's, uh, there's actually even more um, suggestions in that website. So can you help me understand why? It's a great way to start a conversation if you're confused and you don't want to make assumptions. Can you help me understand why you said this or why you did that? Or I'm curious about, there it is, the word curiosity. I'm curious about um, why you do this um, and, and you ask it in an open-ended way. I'd like to learn more about how did you come to this position or this way of thinking? Or um, are there other ways at looking at this? Or have you considered other ways of looking at this? What leads you to believe? It's a great question. What leads you to believe? You're showing curiosity. You're interested. You're, if your posture is humble, you're interested in learning. How do you feel about this or how does this make you feel how do you feel about this feel free to take a screenshot of this if anybody wants this lift afterwards i'm really happy to share it very very helpful um, list curiosity um, i believe yeah it's the antidote to turning us all into donkeys <laughs> and it's cultivated by love and listening I also think that it can be cultivated by building friendships with people who have a different background and a different perspective than us. As we listen and learn from them, their lives can actually arouse greater curiosity and appreciation for the beautiful diversity that God has blessed us with as human beings. Yeah? When we get to know people from other countries and other cultures, we are far less likely to make gross assumptions about those people who live in those countries. It will help us to avoid those mistakes. And as a bonus Christians, 
Diversifying your friendships now will prepare you for spending eternity with your brothers and sisters from every nation, tribe, people, and language group in heaven. So we get to practice now, <laughs> which is awesome. So we might look at Hanan, and we might look at what he did, and we could say, well, you know what? He didn't do everything bad. He actually at least listened to his advisors. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Get some counsel, listen to the counsel, take that into consideration. Isn't that what the Bible says in Proverbs eleven fourteen, for instance? Without wise leadership, a nation falls for their safety and having many advisors. Isn't this what Hanan did? Hanan's problem wasn't that he had advisors. It was the advisors he had. Yeah. So we can all surround ourselves with all kinds of people who love to give us advice. But if these advisors are unwise and ungodly, it can lead us to making unwise assumptions that can lead us to taking very ungodly actions. Do we, do we hear this? So friends, if you are surrounding yourself with advisors who are stoking your fears, leave the room. Get out of that chat. Leave the discussion. Leave the channel. Right? For God's perfect love, it casts out fear. Fear has no place in the place of a believer. Hanun's advisors twisted David's motives based on their own fear that David was coming to take their stuff. That's really kind of what it was at the core of this assumption. If Hanan had stopped and allowed himself to become more curious, he could have seen that their fear was based on baseless assumptions. And he could have, like his father, had trusted David's character and welcomed his delegation with open arms. I'd like to invite up the musicians. Because we're going to conclude um, with a couple of final songs as, an, as a way of responding to God's word to us. But before we uh, actually do that, and before we start thinking about what we're doing the rest of the day, uh, I want to give us a moment to be still. I just think this is very important when we come together to be still in the presence of God. To be still so that we can listen to, to God's word to us and to any counsel that he may want to give us in any way that he's inviting us to apply his word today. I think it's important for us to listen to the Lord. So I'm going to put up a couple of questions. You may find these questions helpful. Just spend a couple of moments. Uh, we're going to have some quiet instrumental music playing in the background. Feel free to 
ponder these questions if you want, or you just close your eyes and just listen to God's still small voice speaking to you. Yeah, let's, uh, let's pray. God, would you continue to speak to us and show us how we can love and listen better? God, ways that we could become even more curious and not think that we're all know-it-alls. God, help us to learn from you and from one another. Help us to make fewer assumptions, God, that hurt people. So, Father, hear our prayer, for we are your chosen people that you have declared being holy and being dearly loved. God, we want to be clothed with your compassion and with your kindness, with your humility and with your gentleness and with your patience. God, we want to bear with each other and we want to forgive one another just as you have forgiven us. God, forgive us. Forgive us. And God, we want to be known for your love because it's your love, God, that binds all of these things together and allows us to live in perfect unity. So it's in your name, to your glory we pray. Amen.